Welcome to Peaceful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. And, uh, you know, life still sucks. So, uh, not a whole lot to say, right? No, just, just get used to it. Get over things, it. Things are bad. Like, you, know, you can catch cold and die just walking outside. People basically are assholes everywhere. Uh, and Which you is know, why that, you got to tune into the show, because what else are you going to do? Right. Well, this at least concentrates it right it isolates the problem oh you mean because we gather all of well, the evidence yeah, I mean, of that if you, right if you know if you're in here it's only a certain number of assholes basically right oh if right if you're on social media there's just like an ever-expanding universe of, of objectionable people and um, right you don't need that so in here there's at, at most two yeah at least one because right. Matt's always on the show. Right. Yeah, and then, exactly. um, and, yeah, depending on my mood and, and the guests that we have on. But today's guest is not an asshole. He's not an asshole. He's just smart. He's just smart. Yeah. So we have yeah. a very interesting guest, a mystery guest. We'll talk about that uh, in a bit. Um, but what, we have a lot to get to. So let's just dive right into it. Yeah. Uh, well, before we dive into it, just really important announcement. The, sh the lighting in my room is making it look like I had some kind of accident and shaved part of my eyebrow. Mm -hmm. But I assure you, that's not what happened. It's just yeah. a shadow. She did actually shave one of her eyebrows. Uh, so halfway only, yeah. Yeah. So she's just saying that to try to. Yeah, try I to should pencil it. it in to make it look. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, so four food groups: uh, Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Uh, isn't that terrible? Isn't that weird? We we have a little bit of a tech issue, so we're gonna record into my iPad from now on. So uh, apologies. Now on the... on this episode, don't worry. Uh, you know, look, there's a lot of stuff going on this week, but the big. Probably the big political story was the deal that didn't happen. I mean, there's obviously a million things that can happen from now until the election day. But the question of whether or not the Democrats and the uh, uh, and the Trump administration are going to come together to pass a stimulus bill that will give people relief is probably the biggest single serious policy issue i guess that we're dealing with right right now apart from the the uh, supreme court situation and um you know trump kind of is he's been all over the place with this it, uh they he, he kind of abruptly pulled out of uh negotiations with the democrats a long time ago then he went back into them then he publicly stopped negotiating again then he started doing it again uh, and now, uh, you know, as of this moment, actually, probably the deal will already be done and the money will already be spent by the time the show comes out. But uh, right now, I think it was originally uh, 3.4 trillion. Uh, it's now the proposed number is 2.4 trillion. And then and that was, I think, the Democratic offer. Right. Right. Trump. I think countered with a much smaller offer beforehand. Then he came up to 1.8 trillion, and um, they've rejected that number, and the, the the Democrats did. And Nancy Pelosi uh, came under a lot of fire from a lot of different people from all across the political spectrum, including friend of show friends of show, Ro Khanna, yeah, and Andrew Yang. Yeah. Uh, Andrew Yang said uh, he tweeted, Nancy Pelosi, take this deal. Which is like really problematic and um, misogynist. And um, a man should never tell her, a woman, what to do because she's a queen. Who are you doing that? Just like annoying knee jerk um, 
not like a neoliberal feminist voice. Ah, okay. Listen to women, including the ones who create an ineffective opposition to Trump. Okay, so this became part of the the social media joke to this thing that happened. Uh, Dan, can we see the exchange between Wolf Blitzer and uh, Nancy Pelosi? To those people is, we're going to get a deal. And when we do, it will be retroactive. It will be retroactive. Here's what you wrote in a letter to House Democrats, Madam Speaker. And I ask these questions only, as you know, so many millions of Americans are suffering right now. Well, you quote two people who know nothing about the agreement. There is no agreement. But what the suggestions are as if there's some authority on the subject. Please, uh, give uh, equal weight to 12, to all of the chairmen on the committee who have written this bill. But so many of your fellow Democrats in the House, they want a deal right now. No, that isn't. The problem solvers. They all want a deal right now. And and here's what they're complaining about, because you wrote a letter to House Democrats and you said this. Let me read a line from the letter uh, you wrote. The president only wants his name on a check to go out before Election Day and for the market to go up. Is that what this is all about? Uh, Not allow the president to take credit if there's a deal that will help millions of Americans right now? He's not that important. But let me say this. That's a lie. With all due respect, with all due respect, and you know we've known each other a long time, you really don't know what you're talking about. If the plural of anecdote is not data. Yes, there's some people who said this or that. Overwhelmingly, my caucus wants what is right for the American people. Overwhelmingly, our chairman who wrote the bill, read their statements. They all put out their own statements when they saw what the White House was proposing. So do a service to the issue and have some level of respect for the people who have worked on these issues, written the bill to begin with. She's lying because as we know from the Kara Swisher interview that I mentioned last week that I heard via Jimmy Dore, and he played the interview, this is not a question of interpretation, Pelosi says the president just wants to write out, you know, write a check uh, with his name on it. And if that's not important, why does she keep bringing that up? This is obviously to score political points. But let's not go into that. You evidently do not respect the chairman of the committees who wrote this bill. I respect all of you. And I wish you you would respect the knowledge that goes into getting uh, meeting the needs of the American people. But again, you've been on JAG defending the administration all this time with no knowledge of the difference between our two bills. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to say that to you in person. Madam Speaker, these these are incredibly difficult times, right? Right now, uh, and we'll leave it on that note. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. No, we'll leave us. it on the boat that you are not right on this, Wolf, and I hate to say that to <laughs> you, right. but I feel confident <laughs> about it, and I feel confident about my colleagues, and I feel confidence in my chairs. And it's not about me; it's about millions of Americans who can't put food on the table, who can't pay the rent, and we represent them, and we represent them, getting and by we represent these long food lines that we're seeing. Them. I know we you know are. them. I'm, I'm just we saying. We represent them, and we know no, them. No, you're a turd. We, we say. know them. We represent them. Don't let yes. the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say. It is here nowhere in near perfect. Madam yeah, Speaker, always the case, but we're not even close to the good. All right, let's see what happens because every day is critically, critically important. Thanks so much Thank for joining us. Thank you for your us. sensitivity to our constituents' needs. I am sensitive to them because I see them on the street begging for food, begging for money. Madam Speaker, thank <laughs> you so you much. Have you fed them? We feed them. We feed them. We'll continue this conversation down the road for sure. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back.
Nancy Pelosi, I would like for you to reach into your fr- fr- fridge and take out a bunch of your ice creams. She had great flavors. Yeah, which flavors were? Uh, I don't chocolate. She, we know she likes chocolate. Um, right. We feed them. First of all, it's like, it's. I don't even know where to start with that. And she says something so dismissive <laughs> about Rokana. She's like, oh, that's nice. But um, I'm not sure where to start with that, uh, except for she has nothing of substance. This is like the verbal equivalent, rhetorical equivalent of, no. And that's what people were saying. It's like, let, let them eat claps. Yeah, let them eat claps and let them eat shredded Trump speeches. Right, and 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 brambleberry crisp and salted peanut butter. Oh, is that the is that the is that the her flavors? Yeah. So yeah, if you go if you look at the flavor, her her ice cream of choice is a brand called Jenny's, uh, and they have they have some some really excellent, really inviting looking designer flavors. You should just go around giving giving homeless people little sample spoons of it, so they can just taste what happiness tastes like. Yeah. Are you giving those samples? Because we give them the samples. Because we give them, yeah. I want to yeah. know what flavors they are, though. Can I just address one brief thing with the Wolf Blitzer situation? So uh, that interview between her and Blitzer turned, like, remarkably poisonous, like, really quickly, right? Yeah. And and uh, I, I think what's going on in that interview, because she doesn't do that with... Um, in, in, in the rare instances where she's interacting with, like, a, a conservative interviewer. But I, I think that she she is so used to, you know, getting softballed by yes. CNN and MSNBC, MSNBC yeah. and, you know, the New York Times and all these other, uh, you know, sort of traditional kind of mainstream press outlets that when you have a, uh, you know, a newsreader who is doing what they basically any of them would have done maybe 10 years ago and just asked a couple of questions that like, you know, have a few thorns on them. Right. right? Uh, You know, she immediately, you can see it in the video. She immediately takes that as a personal attack, like, like, you know, below the belt, you know? And, and she's, she's like, she's mad in a way that, that is difficult to account for on any like rational level other than, I mean, Yes, maybe, maybe like it's true. Wolf Blitzer is kind of stepping out of his lane here, and that's uh, how could he not? How could he not? I mean, I think it's yeah, but well, no, I mean, what I'm saying is he's stepping out of character, like it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. It's, yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's not inappropriate. It's just not. It's not his, appropriate. Yeah. Wait, it's it's. I would say it's not inappropriate. You're saying it's. You're saying it's not it's, inappropriate. No, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just it's unusual. Off, it's off brand for him. Yeah. It's off brand, right? right but she but she can't her brain can't process it. She's so used to getting this other thing. You know why? She has brain freeze, Matt. She has, oh, from all the ice cream. Yeah. Right. That's true. It does hurt right in that same place. Yeah, it does, right? right? Yeah. When you eat it too quickly, but it's so yeah. good. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So this whole thing, you know, it's, it's strange. If you read uh, Pelosi's dear colleague's letter about why they said no, it's a little odd because, because it, it highlights some things that, that are, you know, they sound like they make sense. She she actually talks about what David talked about last week, which is a lack of OSHA protections. Right. Uh, but the f- the first thing that she writes as her primary objection to shooting, this is her, her letter. A key concern is the absence of any response on a strategic plan to crush the virus. We cannot safely reopen schools, the economy, and our communities 
until we crush the virus with the science-based national plan for testing, tracing, treatment, and isolation, and for the equitable and ethical distribution of a safe and effective vaccine once developed. This strategic plan is contained in the HEROES Act. Uh, please see the Energy and Commerce, Commerce Memo, which is attached. And I, I'm not in a position to evaluate like what those plans are or how effective they, they could be or anything like that. I haven't studied them at all. But for that to be your primary objection to, to shut down you know, nearly $2 trillion in aid at, at, at this moment before an election, it feels kind of pretextual, doesn't it? Like, like they're looking yes. for a reason to say no. And I, I, I'm not getting it, frankly. I mean, is it, is it just because they don't want to give Trump the win or is there something else? That's, because there could be lots and lots of really serious, like, yes, are there, is, does it include liability waivers that's going to allow these you know, companies to get away with all kinds of things in terms of firing people? Um, maybe it's something like that, but if it was that, that would, that should be the first thing that you should mention, you know, it's just, it's just confusing with the politics. Like, I thought it was very weird when, when Trump didn't do one of these deals earlier, cause he spent all summer getting beat up for not doing enough, uh, for, for people on this front. But why would the, why would the Democrats at this late date want to wear, you know, a lack of a deal right now they, they, they can pitch it like it's her fault. Right, exactly. Right. Yes. And I think that the Dems could say, look, we got this with, you know, we because we care about people, we compromise on this bill because we know that people need they're too suffering too suffering too much. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't have to be you don't have to let him take the win for it and Dems take the L for it. Like we know that Trump's bad on this and Dems are supposed to be better on this. So Right. Yes, exactly. And 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 you they should I don't know it seems to me that what you would do in this situation is stall a little bit say no maybe once you know and then and then say all right here's nine things we got you know for stalling right, right? Um, and you know, maybe that maybe that does include more like child tax credits or uh, you know work, job protections or you know more 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 staffing at OSHA you know, a more coherent vaccine delivery program. I don't know, whatever it is, right? You, you want to be able to come out and say that you got this. Right. Uh, but to, to just say, to just be in a position where the no is on you, I'm not getting it right, right yeah, now. Yeah, it's not good optics or policy, right? Right. And, uh, and, and just to be clear, I, I thought exactly the same thing about Trump all summer. In fact, I was I was pretty convinced that this was, this was going to be one of the big reasons that he lost right. in November was his failure to, you know, to dig deep enough on the individual aid front, right? Because they, they did do something in the first month. It wasn't a lot, but right. it, was, it, it was symbolically something. And then they, then they kind of just... Yeah, and then they took it as a... Then they got to wear that... I mean, use that as a victory, right? Right, say that they were taking bit. care of the people. Right, right, right. Just want to read this very short thing. Nancy Pelosi on that on that Swisher interview that I mentioned. Kara Swisher says, where do you press then? Uh, when you did the ACA, which I think most people really attribute to your muscling it through, you said you go through a gate. If the gate's closed, you go over the fence. If the fence is too high, we'll pole vault in. If this doesn't work, we'll parachute in. We're going to get health reform passed for the American people. 
where is your poll vote here? Where is that for you? And aside from the Republicans, how are you going to use your power to make them do something? And Pelosi says, well, I believe in the American people. They understand people are hurting. We have to meet their needs, not give the president a chance to just say, I'm going to put my name on a check, send it out, and don't talk to me about food, rent, first responders, healthcare workers, the virus, or anything else. That's all he wants is his name on a check that goes out. And Kara Swisher goes, with all due respect, what's the difference as long as the people get the money? Pelosi says, no, nothing. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Perhaps I'm not clear. And then she says, state and local government provide everything for us. They're where services largely come from. If you want to talk about education, we're unhappy about the kind of money and how they want to spend at the federal level. But that's a small percentage of the money. Over 90 percent of the money comes from state and local government, which is firing teachers as we speak. Over 1 million, maybe 1.5 million for public employees at the state and local government. Uh, level have been fired. It could go up to five or six million people if we don't get this bill. Now those people will lose their jobs. They will then go on unemployment insurance. What's the good of that? Wouldn't it be better for them to meet the needs of people rather than cutting services, raising taxes, firing people, and putting them on unemployment insurance? So we're looking at it comprehensively. You're saying just so they have a check in their pocket. It doesn't matter if they have food and rent. And then Swisher goes, I get that. So what is your pull vote to get there? How are you going to pull vote over this? And she goes, we're just going to keep making our case. Honestly, I don't I don't get it. Like, the, yeah, they, they have some leverage in that you can't get this passed without their votes, but they don't have the, the ability to just ram it through. So the only thing you, you, got, you really have over the situation is a veto. And a veto is what you don't want on a an emergency aid package. You know what I mean? Like, you, you, you want to make sure that it does go through. Uh, but, you know, in the way that you want. I think it is pretextual as you said which i'd never heard before i like that pretextual. i hope that's a word it might not be i'm sure it is no well if it's not we just made it a word webster's look it up put it in um no it's just like i i can't stand the reifying of an individual as more important than like the the yes queen nancy you know clap thing like she's one woman who's extremely rich and powerful and if you're more offended by a tone that you think Wolf Blitzer took with her, which honestly, uh, I think it's a bit infantilizing. She is the Speaker of the House. I think she can take some of this, all of this. And I think that if a man were talking to Blitzer, he'd say the same thing. And he wasn't making her sound dumb at all. He was just pushing back on her pretty incoherent position. But if you care more about that than all the women who are out there suffering, not provide, you know, not having their needs met, and who Nancy Pelosi is okay, uh, basically, like, throwing under the bus, selling down the river, whatever the thing is, then Nancy Pelosi is perfect for you because it's just performative and substance-free. And again, it's right. about, like, optics and how much this one woman or a handful of women, how much they resonate with you. And it's that's just, like, purity, politics, self-indulgent, narcissistic, and... Uh, not a lot of solidarity in that. Look, she's she's a, yet another prominent major party leader who's worth a hundred million plus dollars. Incidentally, how right? Like there, you know, well, a lot of that money has been made since she since she was in office, which I really wonder about. Um, and there was a time in American history, like not that long ago. I think you can go back to probably the Clinton years. And, you know, the bulk of people weren't aware of how, how rich politicians got in this country. Um, 
I think to, some people were sort of dimly aware that when presidents left office, you know, like Gerald Ford, they would join the boards of big companies and play golf once a year and get paid ridiculous salaries. Um, everybody kind of understood that. Uh, but now people are very, they're, they're, like, they're like very aware of how wealthy these politicians are. And it's, it's just a really bad look when, you know, I, I mean, I think it really hurt Hillary Clinton in 2016, you know, when they asked her that question, like, why did you take all that money? And she said they offered it. Like, it just rubbed people the wrong way. And right. now we're in the middle of this pandemic. And, and I think a lot of these politicians, they've just been, they've been in this, you know, world for so long where they're, for, for them, all of these questions are kind of theoretical, right? Right. Like, you know, we, we, we have to play this out politically to make sure that, you know, we, we come out ahead. Uh, but, you know, for a lot of people, it's urgent. It's like, you know, we need the money, you know, tomorrow. It doesn't matter whose name is on the check. Right. Uh, or, you know, this, the student loan situation, like we need that for, we need the student loan forgiveness. We can't argue about what the long-term impact of that is going to be or whether that's going to create a moral hazard or whatever it is. Like they need that, you know, right, right now. But that's not the case you know, for, for a lot of these politicians. Same, and frankly, same thing a little bit with the police. You know, uh, we're seeing that, you know, in, in Minneapolis where a lot of people who were in favor of the strongest reforms were living in neighborhoods that just don't really, you know, have police or need police, right? And so that's, it, that's another thing that kind of looks weird to ordinary voters. I just, I don't know. I think it's a miscalculation. It's not like Trump is sensitive to the needs of the ordinary person either clearly doesn't particularly give a shit like that's always a thing where people and this is what dems live off of and they try they're not used to being challenged and this is why she freaks out because again and even with this like she sh she pivots to corona um so uh so, so Wolf Blitzer says um Madam speaker they really need the money right now and even members of your own caucus yep. even, that's nice she says yeah even members of your own caucus madam speaker want to accept this deal 1.8 trillion congressman rokana for example wait a minute wait a second let me just quote rokana um and uh man you know well i assume you admire him no he's a democrat he just said this he said people in need can't wait until february 1.8 trillion is significant and more than twice the obama stimulus make a deal put the ball in mcconnell court and then Blitzer says what do you say to rokana what i say to you is, I don't know why you're asking, you're always an apologist. And many of your colleagues apologize for their public imposition. Rokana, that's nice. That isn't what we're gonna do and nobody's waiting till February. I mean, this is the, this is the, the same, it's the same line as their Twitter fame or whatever. Yeah, right? the green, the green new dream or whatever, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I would imagine the end game to all of this is that Trump is gonna end up fucking this up somehow. But for now, it's just, it's just a very perilous, thing for them to be playing around with. They really, they really can't lose this election if they don't do something incredibly stupid between now and, and November, I don't think. Right, right. But th this, this is in the area of something that could go badly, you know? So uh, anyway, that was funny. All right, for Republican Suck this week, uh, Trump, Trump keeps doing this, uh, but if, Dan, if we could see the, the, the new ad that they did, which, uh, I'm going from memory. I can't remember what the ad is called, but it's it's something like the awesomeness of America can't be denied and you're an asshole if you do or, so, or something like that. I mean, that, that's not the real title, but whatever it is, it could be see it. 
Say what you will about America, but don't bet against us. We fight, we move forward, we pay any price. Impossible. Jackie Robinson, we treat MLK. Motivation. If it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. We think big and we work big. Mount Rushmore. Building Mount Rushmore. Because we're Americans. Daring, courageous, loyal. Firemen. Our reach always exceeds our grasp. What's that? But we get the job That's done. Armstrong's We got each other's back. And we love a good comeback story. Famous kissing, returning soldier. The economy to greater heights. Some folks The bowl of Wall Street. They don't believe in America. They want to destroy our traditions. Terrorize our community. Free shit for everyone. Burning flag. But we'll never surrender America. Don't bet against us. If you can't guess the punchline of this, uh, some of the folks who are in this ad um, probably aren't stoked to be in it. Uh, and so I think it is Jackie Robinson's daughter ended up protesting that Trump had stuck an image of her father, uh, essentially in a campaign ad, and this is like a long-standing tradition of politicians who do this. They like, they kind of sneakily get somebody to act like they're endorsing the politician. I think the most famous example of this was back in 1988 when uh, George H.W. Bush was using Bobby McFerrin's song, Don't Worry, Be Happy, as his campaign song, which was offensive on two counts because... Uh, he was making a, using the song to make a political statement that I'm pretty sure Bobby McFerrin didn't want him to make, which was like, we shouldn't worry about stuff. Things in the Reagan years are going great. Right. Uh, and then, you know, secondarily, he was implying that Bobby McFerrin himself was a fan of, a fan of Bush. And uh, that ended up being a big brouhaha. Oh, uh, but, did it? He spoke yeah. back about it? Yeah, McFerrin did. McFerrin was not happy about the whole thing. So that keeps happening. Like artists keep getting right. sucked into these things. But but poor Jackie Robinson, in addition to everything else, you know, like from beyond the grave, ending up being stuck in a in a Trump ad. Right. Uh, that's pretty bad. Neil Young had that right with the song that Trump used. It's not it's not big on the list of Trump offenses, but it's 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 interesting because Trump just keeps doing this stuff. He, he keeps he keeps sort of like. Uh, Foe enlisting people to his cause who really aren't fans of his. Oh, you know who we should get on is um, Robin D'Angelo because she can explain to us how yeah. the lesson of Jackie Robinson as taught is that he was the first he was the first black player to um, break the color be, line and that to was be able to succeed on the level of white of white ball players right to play. Right. Oh, I have to find that exactly what that and quote it's was, and it's but. that the way it's taught is that he was so good. And there hadn't been anyone as good before. Yeah, that was basically her thesis. And where she's saying, what we should say is that Jackie Robinson is the first black man who was allowed to play by, right. by you know, the, 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 white, the white man, which right. is exactly the way it is taught to everybody. Right. But, yeah. uh, it's yeah. literally the way that like very mainstream places teach it. Right. And then she was saying that, you know, Jack, the story of Jackie Robinson should should be a story about privilege and actually it's probably the first story that that most white people associate with privilege because it's the it's the one that's most comprehensible because 
the other that, guys, the white guys were so much worse. So many white guys were worse than. Well, there, I mean, there there was there was like a, a, an outfielder who had one arm who was playing in the in the uh, in the major leagues back then. Right. I think actually Professor Horn brought this up. A lot of uh, mediocre ball players who right. wouldn't have survived, you know. So yeah, she 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 really she really kind of anti nailed that right. one. But uh, I think we should have a little just quickly. We should we should have a pool and try to guess which person Trump is inappropriately going to draft. Next. Into his yeah, into his uh, into his campaign ads. Let's see, um, I'm gonna go with Huey Newton. That would be a tough one for him to pull off, but he probably could. Maybe what would be really interesting is if he went full circle and and mentioned someone from the Exonerated Five. Oh right, yes. That's like the least uh, likely, maybe. Yeah, that would be yeah. He could Photoshop himself, you know. Uh, in a group photo with all of them. With them, yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 What about if he got Sister Soldier? That Trump. would be good. That would be good. Uh, who's who's a good feminist author? Oh, yeah. Good. Uh, good. Yeah. A feminist author who critiques neoliberalism and uh, Joe Biden, right? Liza Featherstone. Yeah. Liza Featherstone. Mm-hmm. We could make a video of, for him if we wanted to. Yeah, it would be like a We Are the World type of thing. Yes. We are, we are Trump's world. Yeah, we are Trump's world. Or what was that hands across America, arms across America thing? Yeah, hands across Trump. That would be hands good. Hands across Trump's America. Yeah. Well, we got to get all those people together in one shot and see see who will volunteer to do a pro-Trump ad. I think it would be kind of funny, actually. I think we should just make it without their permission, like Trump did. It would be funny, oh my actually. God, how funny would that be? What, what song would they be singing? They'd be singing something really... Really, like, uh, you know, like uh, Pharrell Williams' happiness song, something like that, yeah. Actually, what I heard automatically without even thinking, it was like a parasympathetic, it was like synaptic, presynaptic, was the Jerusalem song from uh, that Carrie Simon did in Working Girl. Oh, yeah, 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 that would be good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, if you're watching the show, we want you to help us out. Make a montage of all people, of all these people who have said critical things. If you have video of it, that's even better. But if not, you can just write it out like activists. I just I just want them each to have solos kind of like in We Are the World. Right. But, you know, like with where Rachel Maddow would, would have to have her hands over the. The, the earphones, you oh, know yeah. what I mean? And no, they, like yes. belting out how much she loves Trump. That would be, that that could be really fun. If we no, could. we, it's easy. We just take the video they already did for- The song um, would be called So Much Winning. So Much Winning, yes. Yeah. And all we have to do is, this is my fight song. They've done that already. Do you remember this that? Is they hit, this is my fight song, which right. Donna oh, yeah. Shalala played in the halls of Congress, but also um, all these actors did this in 2016. Right, right. Remember? Yeah. Kind of well, they're going to have to do it, do it again. All right, what do we have for uh, isn't, isn't that terrible? Isn't that terrible? So for isn't that terrible, we have something that um, I saw popping up. All right, so if we could just go to this article uh, at BGR. All right, so you hate to see it or you love to see it. A venomous caterpillar is invading Virginia. A hairy venomous caterpillar is invading Virginia and it might make you throw up. Touching the caterpillar puts you at risk of a rash, fever, and even vomiting. Um, And it's native to southern states, but isn't typically found in Virginia. And then I'm just going to go on reading. If we could scroll down a little bit. Uh, Some people don't like bugs. That's totally understandable, as many bugs are kind of creepy, slimy, or otherwise off-putting. 
there's a species of caterpillar in the U.S. that may that might initially seem strangely cute. And Matt, you and I should litigate that uh, shortly. Uh, but its name and the pain it can inflict are more than enough reason to see or clear on it. It's called the pus caterpillar. And if you touch it, you're in for some serious discomfort. Um, how does this work, you ask? It's covered in hair, making it look particularly odd, but that hair hides a painful secret. The hairs hide venomous spines that can inflict serious pain, as well as a host of other symptoms that sound absolutely terrible. So what they recommend is that you don't try to kill it. Um, you should just let nature take its course. But if you do have physical contact with them, here's what you can expect. Uh, a rash, itching, which is fine, but other things are uh, fever, inflammation of glands, and vomiting. Somewhere else I read that it was a grid-formed uh, rash, which is actually kind of weirder. So it's a hairy caterpillar that gives you a rash. Yeah, I, I have to admit, the, the original headline, which I can't find now, was um, vomit-inducing caterpillar, which was a lot better than a venomous caterpillar. These people do not know how to do SEO. I mean, if they really wanted to do de deadly, deadly vomit-inducing, deadly naked vomit-inducing caterpillar. Also, can we talk about the way it looks? I mean, it is cute, but what's the first thing you think of when you see this? A hedgehog. Interesting. I thought wig. Oh. I thought like wig on the side of the road or like wig on. Like a toupee? Yeah, 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 like a toupee with like a, a like a mullet toupee with a rat tail or a mullet. Like a Joe Dirt kind of a thing? Yes, with um, also with some highlights in it. You got like two parts of it that are highlighted. So the thing is like a brown, it's like, it's kind of an auburn haired uh, vomit inducing caterpillar. It's kind of, it's, yeah. it's got the Leonid Brezhnev eyebrow thing going for it too, a little okay. bit. Oh yeah, I see what you mean. On the top? I mean the whole thing. You, you the whole, just, oh, it's just, one eyebrow. I see, you're right. Yeah, if you had yeah, two yeah. of those. Right, and you have one Brezhnev, right, you're you right. one Brezhnev. It doesn't have enough uh, bright colors on it. Like, I think, to be fair in nature, if yes, you're gonna you're right. be, if you're gonna be poisonous, you should have like bright red or yellow in there. Yeah, and this so ba so Somewhere. basically, this caterpillar, it's uh, the more I'm looking at it, the more liar. adorable it becomes. But it's a it's a coward liar. It's a coward. It's a liar. coward liar. It's using a sneak attack, and um, I'm not. Look, they're not shark level bad at all. I don't want anyone to think that's my point. They are kind of cute. Also, kind of looks like a turkey. How many of those do you think would fit in a blender? I don't think we can say that unless we know the dimensions of it, and it's not giving us the context. It, lo it looks like it's it's about the size of a of like a dime, maybe, which means you could probably fit a hell of a lot of those. And then what would you do with it? Blend. Right, but then you blend, <laughs> and then what? Uh, Point, like you, really, you give really it to someone. My thinking. You put it into a chalice, <laughs> a chalice, and you hand it to someone at dinner. You could fill a balloon with it and then get a bunch of firecrackers, like an M80, and tie it to the balloon and blow it up. And then let it have, and, and, or you could leave it, you know what you should do? You should, what's the thing they do with like poop and bags? They leave it on it, you leave it in front of Set it on fire, yeah. Not and leave it. Ring somebody's doorbell. Yeah. But then they would get poison all up and down their feet. Well, that's a, I thought that was the point. I thought you were trying to be nefarious in this setting. No, no, I'm just... Oh, you're just being one of those sick sociopaths who likes to torture animals without, and without, 
that's no, that's mitig- not cats or you know no it's a uh, right it's not a cat or dog thing but that's the only way i could respect you is if you had a target in mind which would mitigate the sadism Look, I, I draw the, I draw the line at frogs. Like I don't do the I wouldn't do the Beavis and Butthead thing where you throw the frog up in your head with a baseball bat. That's but I could awful. definitely I could definitely fill a blender with hairy caterpillars. I could do that. I couldn't. Could you, you couldn't do that. I in self defense, if someone was coming after me, <laughs> well, you and I had a heads up, and I had a heads up about it, and I could run. Or if I was in my home and it was like a scream situation, and they were in my house. If I kept a, a bag, a pouch of hairy caterpillars, and I could just throw them in the blender, and then- Just if there happened to be one nearby. No, you know what I need to do? I need to order some hairy caterpillars, but only when they're dead, as long as the venom works when they're dead. So I'm really hoping it does, because I don't want to hurt the caterpillar. So if when a, a hairy caterpillar dies of natural causes, I would like to have them, if anyone out there can do this, send me a, 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 a box of hair, naturally dead hairy caterpillars uh, i'll pay for it we can work that out i can venmo you i'm gonna blend them and keep them that blend in my refrigerator so it's ready to go and i'm gonna make a flask of it so when i'm out once post covid if i'm out and about i won't have a blender on instead of it's like my it'll be my mace my personal mace I see. Okay, that's mace. interesting. You may make a, make a little little flask out of it. Yeah, or a spray. Yeah. I'll put into a spray bottle. So you know what? This started as a, isn't that terrible, but I'm going to say isn't that doesn't that have a lot of potential? Doesn't that have? Like, that's more where the question is here. Yeah. Isn't that I potentially? Mean, we started in one place. We ended at another place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I like it. All right, excellent. Isn't that weird? Uh, this week, um, this was actually a popular news story around the world. Believe it or not. Dan, if we could see the if we could see the BBC broadcast about this incident. Before we start, see how many puns you can catch. Okay. Because this, this is the, again, I know I'm a sucker for this. I love TV writing, like, but because you can't you can't be too hokey with the TV writing. You only have like six sentences, right? So you got you you just got to go for it with every one. See how many you can find in this in this broadcast. Taking your kids to the zoo should be an educational experience, a chance to get familiar with some exotic animals. But I'm sure parents weren't expecting those lessons would extend to teaching their youngsters profanities. <laughs> no Five African grey parrots were adopted by the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park in August and placed in quarantine together. But when they moved into the main outdoor aviaries, they started swearing at visitors which has ruffled a few feathers in the Yes. Yeah, that's so. one. That's yeah, one. action was swiftly <laughs> taken. They've now been moved into different colonies away from delicate ears. Yeah, apparently this park is no yeah. stranger to bird controversy. It's also home to the parrot that went viral on social media with his version of Beyonce's If I Were a Boy. Great song. If I Were a Boy. Honestly, the things people tweet these days. Seriously? I'm here all night. You went there? <laughs> it's, a, it's debatable whether swiftly, whether, whether, whether they're making a bird pun or not, but the things, the things people tweet these days and, uh, and ruffled feathers. So th- this story was all over the place, and that ruffled feathers line was all over the place. Right. It was like, in, just FYI, what this story is about is a bunch of African great parrots who... I guess individually were raised in, in different places and individually learn their own profanity. 
in each one of these places, then were quarantined in the same room and began swearing at each other. Uh, then uh, they, were, they were shown to people at a zoo, began swearing at the people in the zoo, which prompted the zoo goers to swear back at the parrots, which taught them more profanity. Right. Uh, so they, they learned, actually learned more profanity. They, they learned each learner individually from their owners, then from each other, then from the zoo goers. And they all ultimately had to be separated. So it's a pretty funny story. Like it, right. as these stories go, it's pretty good. It's like a reproducing, it's like a monster reproducing or something. Yeah, exactly. Like a... Exactly. I mean, it's an uplifting story in a lot of ways. Like everybody all around the world was using the same language. Uh, Dan, if you can see CBS, did a, did a write-up. Five parrots separated at British Zoo after encouraging each other to curse profusely at guests. That's a good headline. It's it's evocative. Got the rare adverb use in the headline, which is great. Profusely. Um, when a parrot tells you to fuck off, it amuses people very highly. He said it brought a big smile to a really hard ear. <laughs> um, uh, still, keepers thought it would be best to keep them away from children, so not so not to ruffle any feathers. Uh, this one's good because I, uh, another great news trope is that when the subject matter is corny enough, you can do something blatantly corny with the illustration, like right, have, yes. Have the, like uh, with the parrot with the voice box and, and, and you know, sort of the implied profanity coming out of right. his mouth. The hashtag, uh, the asterisk, the ampersand, the at, the, the exclamation points in the quote. Right. Yeah. Zoo removes parrots from display after birds keep cursing at visitors. Weak compared to the profusely one. This author, Scott Stump, uh, I got to buy this, buy this guy beer if I can find him anywhere. This guy did three paragraphs to open the story, three separate bird puns. It starts off, Polly want to stop cursing? That's great. It's great, right? A British zoo has removed a group of parrots from public view because birds keep letting the cuss words fly. Very good. That's good, right? Yeah. I like it. We got yeah, two, I, two, two sentences and two puns. Right? He's hitting to all fields. Uh, third paragraph, the Lincolnshire Wildlife Park said they moved the five gray African gray parrots into aviaries away from public view after the nonstop profanity ruffled some feathers. There we go. That's in a hundred percent sentence to to pun ratio or one to one to one. Yeah. What kind of drink are you gonna buy him, Matt? What would be the appropriate drink? What's what's a bird themed drink? I'm I can't trying to think of that. Flamingo? Is there something Yeah, some... there, there's uh there's there's I think there is a flamingo themed drink, right? Uh Dove, Paloma, Paloma. Paloma is a Mezcal, I think it's mezcal based, and Paloma means dove in Spanish. Boom. I'll buy it for him. Yeah, yeah. whatever. Look, that that should go that should go in a in a museum of Leeds. Yeah. That's like journalism one on one. So, a good job, Scott. Yeah. If Bad that's job. really your name. Bad job, illustrator. Anyway, all right. Well, we're we're, uh, we're very glad for those those African gray parrots that they they created so much clarity and. Uh, uh, and we hope that they continue to tell people to fuck off because we need we need people to smile during these difficult times, and we need and we need to get work to journalists who make puns. So yeah, and they need to chirp truth to power. <laughs> All right, uh, moving moving along. All right, our guest uh, for this week is somebody who's one of my uh, favorite writers and thinkers, Antonio Garcia Martinez. Kind of an unusual biography for somebody who um, I'm a fan of because he worked at both Goldman Sachs and um, and Facebook. But uh, he's a brilliant guy, author of a um, uh, a really terrifically funny memoir about Silicon Valley and his experiences there called Chaos Monkeys. And we have him on this week because, uh, for a couple of reasons, 
Um, number one, the one of the bigger stories from a couple of years ago, the Cambridge Analytica story kind of had a denouement this week because a British regulator, uh, the ICO, has come out with a detailed report that essentially debunks a lot of the uh, the crazy, wild, speculative theories about how impactful the this group Cambridge Analytica was uh, on the American election. It also uh, completely debunks the idea that it had any impact on on Brexit. Apparently, that there was there was none of that at all, and the the, the Russian involvement was also uh, severely downplayed in, in this uh, in, in this new. British regulatory report. And Antonio, a couple of years ago, was one of the few tech insiders who wrote a piece basically saying, like, look, there's less to this than meets the eye. But of course, he was uh, ignored, as often happens in these kind of media uh, tornadoes that, we, that we're involved with now. So that plus the, you know, the, the ban of, of QAnon by Facebook, wanted to not talk about that so much, but about the challenges of uh, policing the internet um, as viewed from, from by somebody who knows what it looks like to look at the, the dashboard of users uh, inside, inside of a company that big. So uh, without further ado, let's talk to him. So we welcome to Useful Idiots Antonio Garcia Martinez, uh, who is uh, one of the a few guests who uh, genuinely intimidates me. He's actually worked in a lot of the companies that I've written uninformed broadsides about. Uh, he's uh, an insider uh, who is who knows everything about the tech world. Uh, studied physics, worked at Goldman Sachs, if I'm correct, if I'm not mistaken. Is that true? Yes, that's his uh, And uh, just generally knows a whole lot about a lot of things. And we wanted to have him on to talk about a couple of things in particular that are in the news this week, including one story that uh, he, he played a little bit of a role in because he was an early. Uh, critic of some of the um, some of the news coverage that came out, and that's the the Cambridge Analytica story uh, that broke a couple of years ago. Um, Antonio, you wrote a, a a book that I first found out about you reading about the, reading your book Chaos Monkeys, which by the way is a hilarious book. Very surprisingly to me, uh, I didn't know who you were, and it was just an extremely funny book about life inside the tech world, but. From that book, you talk about your experience um, with what is and is not effective in terms of data gathering gathering in companies like Facebook. And uh, from that, I gather that the, the claims of a company like Cambridge Analytica about its magical ability to uh, both attract, to identify uh, people who are going to vote a certain way and influence them might have been a little bit overblown. And you wrote about this a couple of years ago. Can you can you talk about your initial reaction first to what to the Cambridge Analytica story? Yeah, Matt. Um, I mean, not to toot my own horn, I was I was not only involved in that story in terms of debunking a lot of the original story narrative. I was actually involved in developing the technology that actually was used to do a lot of the targeting. Really? Okay. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and so, and that's that's why I was so pissed off about it because I I felt I. I had some small stake in it, and yet the story was being misreported. So the Cambridge Analytica story, which, of course, in the eternal now of the internet, feels like ancient history ago, although, of course, this whole thing has unfolded. It was two years ago, right? It was two years ago. It's nothing. It's nothing. It was right. like 20 years ago on internet. Right. It feels like 20 years ago. Exactly. Um, so the story there was that there's a, a marketing company called Cambridge Analytica in the UK that made much of its ability to target users on Facebook and elsewhere. And it was sort of supposedly implicated with uh, early on the campaigns of uh, Ted Cruz 
and eventually uh, potentially the Trump campaign in 2016. And they made very large claims about the ability to psychologically profile Facebook users and send them uh, marketed, you know, targeted advertising. And in the sort of hubbub and ruckus of the 2016 election, they became sort of one of the boogeymen in the story around Facebook having gotten Trump elected effectively. Um, just, just to interrupt, they, they were accused of, of improperly accessing reams of Facebook data. And then then they there was this like secret sauce that they were accused of having that, right. that allowed them to target people, right? Right. The, the improperly accessed part is actually a, a correct part of the story. And, and yes. just to be clear, I, I think Facebook does bear some blame on all this. I, I'm not saying it's a completely made up story. So just to summarize the story in like 30 seconds. Um, does everyone remember back in the day when like you used to see all the Spotify listens on your Facebook feed and stuff, or like you would log into Facebook to all these other things and then you'd get like spammed with this shit in your feed and it would just be terrible, right? That was this thing called Facebook platform, which now we're really going back into the midst of time. And I get into a lot that a lot of my book because it was part of Facebook's monetization strategy around 2012, 2013. And you had Facebook ads, right? Right, right, yeah. yeah. It, it all failed. It was a terrible, it was a terrible failure. Um, but what, what it meant was that you could run a Facebook app, meaning an app running inside the Facebook ecosystem that if a user opted into it, that app would have access to some of your Facebook data, uh, you know, under a permission scheme. But of course, everyone just clicks yes to those permission things and whatever, right? So what Cambridge Analytica did was it launched, you know, one of these cutesy political poll type things that we've all done, right? And then it paid people to take them. And when you would take the poll, it would access your Facebook data. And what they were doing is coming up with a correlation model between presumably your political proclivities around various issues, immigration, left versus right, whatever, and your Facebook likes and your Facebook profile. That was in theory the model they were coming up with. Then, and again, that was a misuse of the data and Facebook should have put a stop to it and they didn't and that's a real part of the story. What came after though was that they built a model that based on that, so they know like if you like whatever, Burberry and BMW and Lady Gaga, you're more likely to vote X versus Y on some issue, or at least that's the thought. They then, you know, want to run a campaign for X versus Y and they go ahead and target Burberry, Lady Gaga, whatever. It's a very simplistic view of the world via Facebook's own targeting system, which is one of these things that I worked on in my book. I One of the first products I launched at Facebook was this topic targeting system that used your Facebook data to supposedly figure out what you were into. Was that was that Project Charisse or Charizo? Uh, <laughs> um, that was part of it, yeah. There was a Project Charizo obviously being a Spanish sausage in which yeah. we would try to take in various pieces of, of user data. It was a short-lived project and figure out which one actually boosted ad performance. Almost nothing does, and that's a bigger conversation we <laughs> right, can get that's, into. Right, that's what I wanted to get into, yeah. Okay, like yeah. what Facebook data actually drives ads performance is not it's a lot less than you think, but it, just to finish the Cambridge Analytica thing, mm -hmm. they then use that model to then target ads and th and that was it. And they made a lot of claims about it, which if you spent any time in ad tech, you will, you will have grown deaf listening to dozens of pitches from all sorts of companies claiming all sorts of things, most of which are, are not true. But as I say in Chaos Monkeys, in, in advertising tech, you know, just because it doesn't work doesn't mean you can't sell it, right? And so Cambridge right. very clearly sold it and found, you know, their, their biggest act of salesmanship, I think, was convincing journalists that their technology was amazing, right? More than anything else. But um, yeah. So yeah. So so there, there's a couple of things that are that are um, that are sort of pressure points to the story. First is that they. Uh, that they have the ability to what are, what is it called psychographing psychographics yeah right so psychographics so the whole concept was I think they were looking with the acronym was ocean right they like they were trying to identify uh, openness congeniality um, neuroticism version of realness and neuroticism yeah right 
through some combination of likes. So if you liked certain right. things, right, that was supposed to, you were supposed to have higher or lower scores on each one of those things. And then, right. so to, to me, it's already a little bit specious that, that you can, you can make a lot of uh, conclusions about each of those things based on Facebook's like, likes. I mean, you have to, you have to prove a lot to get to there, but right. from there, they also claim that once they knew that they would be able to target and convince the political voter, right? Which seemed like a right. that's like a bunch of bridges to cross just to get to reality, right? To the ocean, Matt. You, yes, yes, an ocean to cross. I mean, Matt, you, you put your finger on it. I mean, this is I have a I had a piece in Wire that came out right. called the the something specious something of, of psychographics, and that's the problem, right? They're making a jump from a very vague five dimensional per personality model to a set of political beliefs to a set of Facebook likes to then running ad creative targeted against those Facebook likes, hoping to convince you. It literally is something like three or four week models chained in a row. And yeah, that, that itself is, that's the problem right there. Yeah. yeah, if people want to go back and look, the piece is called The Noisy Fallacies of Psychographic Targeting. And that right. was from uh, March of 2008. And just to be clear, psychographic sounds like this really, um, you know. CIA-ish. CIA-ish solid social science thing. It, it is a marketing gimmick. It's, it's, a, it's a meme that's been floating around the marketing world for a long time. Um, I think it was coined, um, there's this thing called the prism segments, which uh, is something like, a, supposedly it bucketizes the entire US consumer population into something like 80 to 100 buckets, including such ones as I think shotguns and trucks or, you know, uh, you know, lattes and liberals or something, you know, it's these very sort of cutesy names that brand marketers who shall we say are not the most quantitative marketers in the history of marketing um, use to basically justify the budgets that they spend. And so that's where the psychographic thing comes from, just so that the audience is not deceived that it's some sort of real psychological model of human behavior. It is itself a marketing gimmick. Um, so yeah. basically, uh, can I just, go ahead. sorry, I just want to make sure people know what what ocean stands for i want to make sure we get it right and then maybe you can give a antonio maybe you can like quiz us or something or diagnose <laughs> us um so ocean is openness to experience conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism and what's interesting is apparently people with a looser gait uh tend to be more uh agreeable a looser gait yes so, so, so to yeah. be clear so o ocean, I I'm not a psychologist, so I can't opine on the psychology. I think ocean is actually a semi-valid model within the world of psychology. When I say psychographics, it's this notion of like bucketizing users into very vague categories, which apparently they're used, they're they're boosting it with this ocean thing, which maybe has validity or not. I can't comment. But in 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 the marketing world in general, this notion of trying to use psychological traits for targeting is not something that is really used broadly within the industry, nor nor you know nor something that people spend a lot of time thinking about, to be honest. <laughs> so, so basically they're, they're, they're arbitrarily making up categories of people and trying to sift them into those categories, which is two different things, right? right. So and that could be, I mean, they probably don't do that, but, but something like security moms or, uh, you know, s s upscale suburban people with kids or something like exactly. that, right? Okay. And then trying to find them on Facebook via the targeting system, right? Which is the hard part. That's the next step, right? I mean, I, I don't doubt that you can probably come up with a correlation between some psychological model and political views or something. Like, there's no question you can probably do that. But then to jump from that to a set of likes and then to use the Facebook targeting system, which is heavily like-based, at least part of it, to then try to target those same people. I, there, there's just too many leaps there to really work in any, in any realistic way. And, and, you, and you wrote about this in your, in your book too. I thought this part was was really interesting because I think people make a lot of assumptions about exactly exactly how useful that data. I mean, it, it, 
Yeah. Clearly it's useful, but it's right. also a lot more confusing than you would think, right? You take the example of listening into like every bar conversation in the world at once. And you're, let's just say you're trying to pick out the name Barack Obama uh, and you do, but that's not going to be a list of Democrats necessarily because the, right. the, the word before it might be fucking, right? right? Or, or there might be, as Katie was talking about off the air, it might be, uh, it, it, there might be sarcasm in, in, in the statement, right? Right. And, and I mean, that, that fucking comment you meant is not just like a rhetorical flourish. We actually had a filter that would actually remove what came after because obviously it was negative sentiment, right? right. I mean, there, it's hard to programmatically detect human sarcasm. There's just no right. way to do oh, it, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and uh, right, I, I think this gets into the bigger issue. And I think this is one of the big misconceptions around Facebook that I was trying futilely to, to remedy with my book, which, which is around how does your data get used to, to monetize yourself, right? Um, do we want to go into this? I mean, yes, I, I absolutely. You know, yeah. I love okay. this. Okay. Unless you have an NDA issue, you don't, right? Oh, no, 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 okay, no, yeah. no, no, no. Um, I mean, look, if I'm still alive after publishing that book, then I think it's probably <laughs> cool at this point. So I haven't been whacked yet. <laughs> um, actually, you know, Facebook wouldn't kill you. They would just delete your Facebook account and consider that equivalent yeah. to death. Well, because <laughs> that's what because they, 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 murder. they literally murder. think that, right? They, when, when you come into the company, you have your faceversary. Right. Yes. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes, and yes, when yes. you leave, they they have like these Kevlar balloons. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's very funny. Like the Mylar one. When you leave, they have Mylar. Yeah. No, no, no. When you on your on your face diverse, a lot of startup companies do this, but Facebook took it particularly seriously that you're you get balloons and stuff on your desk right. when you join the company. That was kind of your it's your, your metaphorical your birthday. Birth, basically. Right. But what happens when you leave? Oh, nothing. Well, I mean. Uh, usually, actually, there was there was a lore around that. You would post a photo of your Facebook ID along with some ram long rambling weepy essay about why right. you're leaving the company or whatever. That was like, okay. like a, it was like a suicide note, basically, um, right? Yeah. A lot of these companies and Facebook and Goldman reminded me of each other a lot. Goldman, what it would used to do, I was on the quant side, which is like the researchers building the models. Mm -hmm. um, they would publish papers, and if you left the company, they would take your name off the paper. And it got to the point that some papers had no authors. Right? It's as if you literally didn't <laughs> exist anymore. <laughs> The paper had written itself because literally everybody had left the firm, right? So it's at these companies, it's like they create this all-encompassing world that you live in. And this is very powerful, by the way. Like we're laughing, but it, it makes them very effective. But once you leave that world, it's as if you're dead to, to that world. So um, That is really getting, funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But getting back to the Facebook ad targeting thing. So here, how to best explain it. So here's one way to think about it, right? Everyone thinks Facebook sells your data, which isn't really true. Facebook doesn't really sell your data. In many ways, it actually buys your data by offering advertisers tools and experiences that convinces them to share them being, just to name random names, Home Depot, REI, Amazon, whatever, to share the data they have on you with Facebook. The reality is that most data that, that you inject into Facebook, things like conversations with your partner, photos of you at a party, really have no commercial value. I mean, you can come up with just those stories that say, you and I are talking about our my cat, who's, you might, you're meowing in the background and suddenly you come to the conclusion that show the guy a cat food ad or whatever but the reality is that the number of times you actually mention commercial content in a conversation anywhere is not as high as you think and even then getting the sentiment around that actually would be really difficult and so um it, you know if you sat there and studied Matt Taibbi or Antonio Garcia forever you could probably come up with some model to do it but again any any idea you come up with has to work for almost 3 billion people who are on Facebook at scale, right? And Facebook just does not have infinite resources to sit there and figure out your every conversation, right? And so what, what typically happens, um, a lot of the data that's used that's, that you consider you know, 
sketchy or scary that you know is this hyper targeting which is real and this is part of what i worked at at facebook as well it's called custom audiences if you want to google it um basically you go out into the world and you use your Safeway or whatever local grocery discount card with your phone number, for example. You sign up for an email newsletter or whatever. There's various keys that are key to your identity, your, your phone number, even your address in the direct mail world. People don't understand, but the direct mail advertising world is still a multi-billion dollar business. And all of this was, by the way, stolen from the, from the direct mail world. They've been doing this sort of hyper-targeting much, much longer than Facebook has. And so there, there's a whole world, there's an ocean of data out there keyed by things like email, address, name, phone number, et cetera. Right. What those advertisers can do is effectively, I mean, often literally upload spreadsheets with your personal information to Facebook. And that, uh, that's done in what's called hash space. So there's a mathematical function that happens. Facebook doesn't get the data, but they can match it to, to your Facebook identity. So if you've ever used, given Facebook your phone number or your email, which you almost certainly have, Facebook can do a link with whatever your your the list of stuff you've bought on Amazon. And Amazon can then target and find you on, on Facebook. So they're, they're not, so the creepiness comes in, it's not what you said on Facebook, like all these stories about listening to your microphone is by the way, technically practically impossible and it's absolutely not happening. And, but the reason why people think it is is because they're being joined to a world of data. It's like, oh, I had a conversation with my girlfriend about cat food and I saw cat food. It's like, no, you literally just bought some on Amazon. You just don't right, realize right. it. Or you went to Safeway and Safeway card and there's all these other inputs. Um, and um, in fact, NPR did a story about it in which they actually examined almost all these stories and there was almost always some other avenue to which Facebook had, had joined that data. Um, so that's really how the weird hyper-targeting stuff works. And in, in that Wired PC site about psychographics, um, on the political side of what they do is what's called the voter file. And the voter file is public information. Both sides do it, Republicans and Democrats, in which they compile data keyed to, if you've ever made political donations, et cetera, et cetera, and then they target you based on that, right? Um, and that, I mean, whatever you think about that, it, that is definitely a real thing. It's not Cambridge Analytica hocus pocus, and they try to target you based on that. Um, to the extent your data on Facebook does get used to target you, there's one aspect of Facebook's ad system which is super successful and nobody talks about. It's called uh, lookalike targeting. And what that means is, and now we're getting a little wonky, I'll shut up after this in case your audience is falling asleep, but yeah. one of the biggest problems that retailers have, if you ever talk to like a, re like a big smart retailer like Netflix, Uber, Home Depot, whatever, right? They're like, okay, I've got this set of million people that I know have spent more than 400 bucks in the past year or whatever, right? Like I know how to reach them. I can retarget them on Google, on Facebook, on Snap, everything, right? What I, need to, what I need you to do is find me another 2 million people just like those people, right? And so what Facebook does based on, like say you and I are friends on Facebook and we're like chatting every day, then Facebook knows that you and I are very similar in some ways or another. Not in every aspect probably, but if you're one of these million, for example, then potentially the ad that get that, would have gotten targeted to you, they also target to me because they know that we're close in sort of the social graph. And that means that hopefully, um, it's also the case that, you know, I would buy whatever you're in the process of buying. I mean, I think what I, the impression that I got when, when this story broke was that you were frustrated by a couple of things in the coverage of this, that A, people didn't realize how commonplace some of this technology was, B, they were kind of overhyping its effectiveness, but what, what was the reaction when you when you when you wrote about this uh, back then? And you know, d did you get any blowback from people at the Times or, any, or other places <laughs> like that? Um, oh no, no, they wouldn't deign. You know, when a yeah. when a peasant screams at the queen, the queen doesn't even notice the peasant. I mean, <laughs> right, right. Of course, nobody at the New York Times noticed. Well, so, some of the writers did. I mean, I, I used to. So back in my even less cynical stage than now, I used to. Part of the reason why I left writing. So I used to be like a full time very online person and writing and all this stuff. And I kind of left it all. I just, I didn't feel I was changing anything, right? I was like screaming into a tornado. And I, and I guess 
you know, the recent news and part of the reason I'm probably on your show, right, is because the, the ICO report came out in the UK that more or less confirmed everything I just said. I was just reading the Financial Times story and it's basically debunking psychographics, calling it, you know, standard techniques that have been used in the industry since forever, which is true and all the rest of it. So, you know, it, it felt like, yeah, I was screaming at a mob, but nobody cared. I mean, the one of the leading cheerleaders of the story, this woman, uh, Carol, I'm going to mispronounce her last name, so I won't even the, attempt the, the it. British, British yeah, the British, Rachel Maddow, basically. Um, I, you made that analogy, not me, Matt, but okay. sure. Yeah. <laughs> I won't contradict it. Um, you know, won all these journalism awards for all these allegations that recently have been shown to be completely false, right? Or, or mostly, or at least partly false and mostly overhyped. And so, yeah, it, it just felt like, I, I just, it's, it's odd the turn that the media has taken against tech. And again, I, I, I criticize tech and chaos monkeys in many ways, right? Like I'm not the super cheerleader, but I think the, the avenues of attack they've taken just seems so basic and just wrong and a little bit elementary that it just kind of pisses me off. And eventually I got so pissed off, I just went back to tech. Like as it is right now, I have a day job. Like I write occasionally, but not really. And so I'm just back in the in the machine where I where I started. Uh, one of the things that I, I, I really loved about Chaos Monkeys and I, and I thought was really interesting and would be worth talking about because it gets to the, this idea that sort of misapprehensions that people might have about this world. You, you talked about Facebook and you, um, you compared it to, you sort of dispelled the idea that these people were driven by greed. You, you said essentially that it was worse than that uh, because they, they, uh, they, you know, they really, 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 really want to make the world a better place and simultaneously basically want everybody on earth looking at a Facebook screen. That's right. uh, so it's, it's a combination of being subsumed in this corporate culture that is trying to achieve this end, but also there's like a belief element in there that's maybe different from other other types of commercial experiences. Can you talk about that a little bit? Or yeah, that's exactly right. I, I, again, another misconception I think of Facebook is that it's all about greed or making money. Um, you know, um, when Facebook filed to go public, I, I was there at the time, and the S one uh, Zuck had a line there about how um, we don't, yeah, or Mark, whatever we don't build services to make money, we make money to build services, right? And like somehow nobody believed it. And yet that's actually how it works. Like working in ads is not the cool job at Facebook. And it's not the cool job at Google either, by the way. Like it's, it's a necessary evil. And I came from the ads world, so whatever. But it, it, nobody really thinks about it. Zuck doesn't understand. I mean, it's clear from his congressional testimony, he still doesn't understand the ads world in any serious way. Really? Um, oh yeah, no, 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 he doesn't. I mean. The opening, I hate referring to my book again and again, but it's relevant here. The opening prologue in my book is is me pitching this whole micro-targeting, hyper-targeting idea, which at the time was a revolutionary concept at Facebook. Facebook did not do it at all, right? And so we were pitching this winger only because the IPO was kind of on the horizon and, and Facebook's revenue wasn't growing fast enough. And so the call went out, like, come up with kooky ideas. And I, who had spent a little bit of time, not even that much time in the ad tech world, said, hey, you know, there's this whole retargeting, real-time bidding, all this programmatic stuff we could do. And he, he basically said yes. And I, I don't think he ever really fully understood what he was saying yes to. And to this day, I'm sure he doesn't understand how the data flows work inside the ad system, for example. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt. Was this the moment when they took sort of took their gloves off on the likes and decided to? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. Yeah, they started using, well, the, the, the one thing he said no to was using the like button for ads targeting, but they later changed that decision. A couple years later after I left, right. they actually, so now the like button might actually be used for ads targeting. That's the one thing, because at the time, remember, Facebook platform was a big deal, right? This was still back in the day of like trying to get you to use Facebook to log into everything. So they didn't, he didn't want 
the like button to be perceived as like the big brother that was following you around. Um, so he said yes to everything else though, joining to the outside world of data, having a real time system that would sync from like, say you go to an e-commerce site, right? That actually pings Facebook and then joins your, your Facebook user ID to that website. And so if you're shopping for this particular product, you're going to see, a, you're going to see an ad for it within seconds on Facebook. Like that, that whole machinery didn't used to exist on Facebook before like 2000. 12, 13. And so the, the book opens with me pitching that idea, which again, was not radical for the ad tech world, but was radical for, for Facebook. But again, getting back to your original question, right? Like Facebook, at least at the time, right? And I think it's changed a little bit given the number of leaks you see coming out of the company. But at the time, at least it was super mission driven. And the goal was really to become, um, you know, the, the, the New York Times of you, your personal social newspaper. I'm, I'm quoting the sort of rallying speech that Chris Cox, who was formerly head of product, and I think he went back recently to Facebook, was giving us the new hires on our onboarding, which at the time, like even me, who was pretty bullish on Facebook, was like, oh, come on, man, that's never going to happen. And yet, you know, here we are, right? And so that, that vision has fired them since the very earliest days. And that's, at the high levels, at least, what they're really about. And, and the New as, York as, Times of you? Yeah, the New York Times of you. And as I say, like, that's actually... Like greed is like very basic, right? A, gre a greedy person is rational and kind of like, right. at the end of the day, isn't actually that scary, at least to me, not that scary, right? But, but a prophet of a religion who wants to re refactor society in a certain way, that's way scarier, right? Because so you have no more, idea what they're willing to do. Yeah. So they're more missionary than mercenary. I, I, that's an excellent way to put it. I, yes, that's right. Yes. They're like, the, they're like neocons almost. No, like they really believe that it were, I mean, there's, a, you know, I guess there's a big debate over whether or not like Dick Cheney cared about KBR Root and uh, Halliburton uh, contracts more than he cared about spreading democracy. Anyway. I, I think well, it was think, Rumsfeld who cared democracy. about the spreading democracy. But, okay, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, by the way, we're dating ourselves at Gen Xers. Nobody understands what, the, nobody younger than 30 understands what the fuck we're talking about, by the way. <laughs> okay, so, you know, Adam, Adam History McKay. History started with 9-11. Check, <laughs> check out the Adam McKay. Adam okay. McKay movie, uh, uh, Vice. Okay. Or maybe All I'm right. dating myself with that reference too. <laughs> so what, what, what did Zuck say in the, in the testimony that, that had you scratching your head about his understanding of ads? I, I mean, he, well, he, he basically punted on a lot of the detail. I mean, the senator's questions weren't particularly good either, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not just in the testimony, a lot of his quoted statements, right? Like whenever he, the few times that he gets asked detailed questions about how ad tech works, I mean, you can tell he doesn't understand the deep machinery, which is fine. But, mm -hmm. but again, I think, Getting back to the issue of being missionary versus mercenary, right? I think one of the things that you can rightly criticize Silicon Valley for, and again, I, I think there's a number of angles that one can rightly criticize uh, Silicon Valley, um, is th they've got this dewy-eyed techno-optimism, right? Which I, I call one of the necessary delusions of Silicon Valley. Like, I think there are a lot of delusions that reign supreme in Silicon Valley. And I think they, they need to exist for this unique Silicon Valley world to exist. And one of them is that they only ever see the positive side. A, they're almost all like middle to upper middle class Americans, right? Which <laughs> implies a certain assumptions about, about the state of the world, right? Like you don't launch a social network and think, oh, this could be used for ethnic genocide one day, because of course, that's just not part of your worldview. You don't understand that as, as part of a thing that can happen with the internet, right? And so it also informs their political ideas because they, they, they come from a starting place where everybody they know is, is, is a certain kind of person. Uh, never yes. mind. Uh, yeah. Yes. I, I think, yeah, I think some of those allegations are right. And then, and then again, part of that, that optimism is that they just never imagine the negative sides of a lot of what they do. Mind you, I think the media side also tends to overstress the negative. Like, I think, you know, everything from the, the, the teachers union strikes and whatever 
Midwestern country, uh, states it was in like 2014, 15, right? We're all organized via Facebook groups. Um, I, I, I own property in a small rural community and all the local gossip and communication and all that happens through Facebook groups. So like there's a lot of positive too. Like again, I think both sides are kind of overstressing it. But I, but I definitely think the techies just sometimes don't have, I think, I, I wouldn't say it's the worldliness because that makes them seem like provincials, but they, I think they just don't have sometimes the, the sort of full scope to understand what the impact of their technology is. And the thing is, if they, if they had that, they would never do what they're doing, right? And that I think is one of the weird paradoxes that like Silicon Valley can't be what it is if you're sitting there thinking about what's gonna be the impact of Uber on the Parisian taxi market, right? Like it, it's probably roiling it. I'm sure there's terrible shit happening in Paris, but you, you, Silicon Valley wouldn't exist if you actually thought about every negative externality. So, so I, they're out yeah. of touch? Uh, to, to a certain degree, yes, I would, I would think so, yes. And what, what are those uh, negative things? Like what are the things that they, that they overlook that you think that would inform their decisions? Anything in particular? Um, yeah, I'll set a concrete example. So I, I think I, I mentioned when we were warming up before this that I, um, in 2014, I moved to, to Europe. I'm a Spanish citizen. I, I lived in Barcelona for a while. Um, Barcelona, beautiful city. The sort of downtown or medieval part of, of Barcelona has basically been ruined by Airbnb. I mean, what the, you know, what the, the nationalist troops in the Spanish Civil War couldn't quite manage to do during the siege, uh, <laughs> right? Airbnb actually managed to do in a couple of years because, um, Basically, every old building has become effectively an Airbnb hotel. I, I, as, as I understand it, Barcelona at the time was Airbnb's biggest market in Europe. And so almost every apartment, I mean, think about it, right? Like a lot of these were crumbling or like not super high-end apartments in kind of the old part of town, but you could book them out for a hundred bucks a night or whatever to English, Swedish, American tourists, et cetera. And of course, everybody did. And so I was living in a building in which I think basically every apartment save one was a constantly changing sort of parade of European tourists. And a lot of the holdouts who lived there had seen their neighborhoods transformed in this bizarre Disneyland-esque ways. In fact, they would, they'd put banners on their balconies complaining about it. Um, and I think that's one of those things that if you're in the, in the mind of, I don't know him or anything, but in the mind of Brian Chesky, right, the CEO of, of Airbnb, this is something that I'm sure didn't enter his mind at all until Airbnb just got to a certain scale. So, yeah. Do you think that, the, so, so that's the, like, the ghost of Franco? Is in, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, if I was a New York Times reporter, yes, I would say Airbnb is basically the equivalent of Spanish fascism. That's yeah, right. That's exactly yeah, what it yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> do you think that they become mercen uh, mercenary? Like, do you think that the, 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 the greed stuff takes over, like subconsciously? Or, I mean, I know this is requiring some kind of psychoanalysis, but do you think that when you're doing it for long enough, you become kind of like... Um, indifferent to the the real world consequences and it becomes or you, or you generate excuses uh for what you're doing yeah uh, subconsciously yeah you know it's you know i left facebook about a year after the ipo and things were getting a little bit more corporate and public company thing there and you know obviously the quarterly revenue number was getting to be kind of a big deal so I, i'm not sure i've never been in a late stage employee by late i mean like considerably after the ipo and a lot of these companies i'm not sure I, I do know, <laughs> one thing I mentioned in the book is that geography at Facebook kind of mattered and where your desks were relative to like where Zuck was, right? Because it was a very sort of imperial company. How close you were to the throne room basically mattered, right? Like li literally, right? Literally, yeah, like physically, yeah, yeah. Like Ads was not even in the same building as, as Zuck in the, in the new campus, right? Which was, I think, symbolic in a way. But as I understand it later, as Ads got into feed and all the rest of it, Ads people were actually sitting close to, to, to Zuck. So in fact, it, it, 
uh, as you're suggesting, it, it may well have changed at Facebook. I, I'm, I'm really not sure. To be honest. I don't want to get into this too much because, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, probably a different subject for a different time. But uh, the whole missionary issue with companies like Facebook and, and Google, how concerning is it or, or could it be? Because they, they, they really traditionally didn't have much interest in content moderation or right. censorship or any of that stuff. And it feels to me from the outside like that what's happening is that they've been, they're being pressured to take on more of that responsibility. And that missionary uh, component to these companies is starting to kick into gear with with that activity now, right? Like, I was just wondering if you could speak to A, the logistical challenges involved right. in, in trying to deal with that much content um, in any kind of rational way and, right. and B, what could go right and wrong with, with, with these efforts. Right, right. So, so my direct experience here is somewhat limited, um, although it's not zero. Um, one of the odd things, uh, so the Facebook ad team was very small for a long time, right? Like when I joined, it was maybe 25 engineers and six product managers. This is as late as 2011. So it's not a very big team. And somewhat randomly, I was put in charge of what, what was then called ads quality. Now it's called ads integrity or some sort of euphemism. Basically, it's the ads police that make sure that you're not uploading nudity or whatever, you know, things that violate Facebook's ad content. So I was never on the consumer side of sort of policing user content, but I was on the sort of commercial side of, of policing ads content. And there the philosophy was very similar, right? You had a relatively small set of human reviewers and you tried to build technology that would let them very quickly sort of review and enforce Facebook's policies. And then you'd use technology to either bubble up things that should be policed or disseminate those decisions more universally. So for example, if one image was shown to violate policy, you would take every version of that image and never allow it in the ad system again, right? You try to build this sort of software human hybrid that minimizing the number of humans used still let you police millions and millions of pieces of content, right? Um, so that, that by and large is the philosophy of all these companies, not just Facebook. It, it, like that's the way it has to work. Um, historically, uh, before this whole 2016 media cycle, Facebook did police user content because it did enforce, obviously, its own policies around pornography, violent content, et cetera. If you note that you go to your Facebook feed and that it's not littered with pornography or violent beheading videos, it's because there's a massive user ops team at Facebook that actually polices that content. Of course, the challenge there, I think, right, with these, this new push towards content moderation is that look, nobody wants to see porn or a beheading video in their Facebook experience, right? Like 99% plus of users just do not want to see that shit in their feed, right? Like it's, and, and then also, you know, like the classic thing, like it's hard to define pornography, but you know right. it when you see it, right? Like right. it's actually not that ambiguous to filter out extreme violence or pornography, right? right? Um, and so enforcing that policy is, is, is A, relatively smaller in scale. Like there isn't that much porn on Facebook to be filtered. And two, it's, it's unambiguous. Like it's clear what is pornography versus is it. But when you get issue, into issues of truth, right? Like what is right. truth? That is a whole different ball of wax, right? And um, I've said this story before. The, the first time I realized like, holy shit, this cycle is gonna be different than everything else was um, Zuck's like post like three or four days after the 2016 um, election in which he basically hinted that they would work with like, um, you know, Snopes or whatever, some, some fact checking site to like help review content, which is the first suggestion Facebook has ever made in history, right? That it would actually be responsible for the content on its, on its site. And from then, of course, that, that move has, has, has only increased, right? And I just remember thinking, oh my God, this, do they understand the road they're going down, right? Like this is gonna change everything in terms of Facebook. And it has, um, a couple of years ago, um, 
probably the only down quarter or the only time that Facebook's share price went down after an earnings report was uh, Zuck basically announcing we're investing heavily in content moderation and um, you know hiring whatever it was, 10 or 15,000 reviewers. They actually compressed their, their profit margins. Facebook historically had a, a, a gross profit margin of something like 30%. So in other words, you know, they a billion dollars comes in Right, and they, they keep 30% of that. They actually compressed that down to like Google levels around 20 some odd percent, all of it to pay for this huge army of contractors or employees to review all this content. So I think th those are the challenges, right? And if you wonder like, why doesn't, so a couple things. One, it's hard to manage humans, right? And Facebook is fundamentally an engineering company. It doesn't want to be an operational company. Two, and here's one thing that I think also outsiders have a hard time getting their head around, even people who are academics or experts who study it, the scale of Facebook, if you've not been at Facebook and opened the Facebook dashboard and seen that every number is denominated in billions, like everything, right? Like just how many zeros are behind any phenomenon? I don't think you understand quite how daunting that is. Um, BuzzFeed, Ryan Mack at BuzzFeed had a story recently, of course, anti-Facebook, but if you read between the lines, I think it was really good. It was about an insider, a data scientist actually at Facebook who uh, took it upon herself to take a role in moderating content. And, um, I think it's, I mean, the piece is obviously written super anti, but I think it's a great look into what it's like at Facebook and it reminded me of my time there as well, where like, here's this one individual, she's relatively early in her career, like she's not like a senior person at Facebook, okay? And she's like having the last word on, I think it was El Salvador. The presidential election in El Salvador was coming down to some relatively junior or mid-level employee at Facebook, the police, right? And that, <laughs> like in the El Salvadorian election is like this rounding error on the, like not even a rounding error on the global dashboard when it comes to engagement, right? And that, that is, and, and you might think, well, you know what, it's, it's unfair that one company should have so much influence everywhere from the Ukraine to El Salvador. And you know, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you, but the reality is if you're saying Facebook should have a level of oversight that the New York Times say does over its own content and every market in that it's in, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm going to have to break it to you. That is just not possible, right? No company in the world has the resources and the manpower to actually do that. And it's simple and, and artificial intelligence is not going to catch up in time. And it's, it's literally just not possible. So, so there are going to inevitably, there are going to be either overreaches mistakes or right. what, what's going to happen if they, I mean, they already are doing it, but what's, what's good. What's the consequence going to be if they, I mean, I mean, this is getting a little, you know, prophetic and a little like, you know, philosophy major after the third bong hit. But, you know, I, I think like the piece I'm working on for my for my sub stack, I still write as a hobby because I just can't manage to not write is about how the, the media world. And I, I think we're entering this sort of media medievalism that I think the notion of there being a public forum with some common notion of truth that we can all agree on is just not going to exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's fine, right? People can go on Substack and write what they want, or the New York Times, which is mostly subscriber-based now rather than ads-based, can, you know, tend to its audience and give it the content that they want. But I think organizations or entities, whether it's the U.S. government or Facebook, that span the growing political polarization will find themselves in an impossible position, right? They will never, it's, it's, look at one of these, one of the bizarre paradoxes, the conservative right-wing world thinks that Facebook is out to get them. But if you actually look at the engagement numbers Fox and Ben Shapiro and whatnot completely dominate Facebook, right? Like somebody like Ben Shapiro gets more engagement on Facebook than like a major news network, right? And so, you know, if Facebook has it in for conservatives, they're really doing a bad job of it. Because if you look at, as Kevin Roos at the New York Times constantly reminds us, because he's constantly tweeting about it, like the top 10 most engaged posts are usually right-wing media outlets, right? And so 
Um, and yet the conservatives think that Facebook is out to get them, right? And so I think it's, they will never be able to satisfy everyone, particularly in a world in which our, not just our media world, our entire epistemic universe is about what happens in the world <laughs> are now diverging into various groups. So I, yeah. And what about, um, there, there's like a, a discussion about whether or not Facebook should um, like censor or comment moderate at all. But then on the other side is the, is the reality apparently that it's not that they're people who are demanding certain activity from or intervention from Facebook. It's not that they're saying that Facebook shouldn't be neutral or hands off. They're saying that they have these algorithms and sorry, cause I'm so ignorant about this, but right. there's a criticism that they have algorithms that, that uh, amplify or favor certain things. So, right. and that, that the demand from some people is that Facebook not do that as opposed to there's, I, I think some people think that there are two options, right? It's like Facebook not doing anything and being totally neutral um, or being very interventionist. And really they're, they're, they are being interventionist? I, well, I, well, I think you frame it the right way, right? There's, there is indeed a spectrum between like absolute freedom of speech, you know, minus pornography and crazy violence that we all right. agree on shouldn't be there. And, you know, having the same level of ownership that the New York Times editorial board does with their op-ed, right? And we're on a spectrum and we're, we're really fighting about where on the spectrum we are. I think you also raised the excellent point about the algorithmic side of things. So people's eyes tend to glaze over when you mention an algorithm. It really is just a model that says, is a user likely to engage with this piece of content? Like, don't worry about the details. The point is, it's a mathematical thing. It runs and says, you've got a 3% chance to interact with this thing and a 2% chance of this thing. It sorts it by that and gives you the top 100 or whatever, right? Like, that's, at the end of the day, that's what it is. And then the question is, you know, are some of the inputs to that model things like virality, right? The fact that, for example, this is the gross simplification, but one feature of the model could be, oh, the, the speed of engagement, like the number of likes it's gotten over the past five minutes. If that were a feature of the model, then stuff like just to cite a name, Alex Jones and with his crazy content, right? If that goes super viral, then that will do well on Facebook, kind of disproportionate with potentially the worth of Alex Jones's content, right? And so uh, I don't think it's crazy to actually say, you know what, Facebook, you should maybe put the brakes on the virality side such that you don't incentivize people to actually come up with super clickbaity viral content. And from what I understand, and again, it's hard to tell from the outside because a, it's complicated, and two, they're not very transparent, which is another thing I think Facebook could be more of, frankly. But supposedly they've taken measures to actually reduce uh, the number of sort of viral inputs to their algorithm such that more extremist content does poorly. But again, from the outside world, it's very hard to judge how effective any of that's been. But, but I, I think, that's, I think that's, a, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, case to be made to Facebook. And did you, did you read Evan Greer's um, piece at, at Wired? A political ad ban won't fix Facebook's election problem. Oh, you know, I hate to say it, having written for Wired, that I didn't read a Wired piece, but okay, I... I'll, I'll send it to you. I, I, yeah, I totally sprung that on you. It's, the subtitle is a performative post-election ban won't solve anything, but cutting off the platform's data-driven rage machine will. I, I mean, I, I have another piece, okay? So I don't want to mischaracterize what that guy said, but right. just, just to take on just what you said as, as a view, which exists in the world, which is like, oh, they shouldn't be taking this, this data-driven approach. I mean, again, the scale is the one thing that I think is missing from how most people think about Facebook. Like, do you realize 
the union of all the content that all your friends on Facebook put out is like tens of thousands, if not more, of stuff every day. They're not gonna just present it to you in chronological order. <laughs> they obviously have to wait it to some degree. And so there's gonna be some level of engagement-driven sorting that happens. That there's no question that needs to happen. And by the way, just to comment on one thing on Evan Greer, like he's discounting the, the differential policing of political advertising. I, you know, I think that's another place where I think there's a valid criticism of Facebook. Their policies around political content probably should be different than certainly around advertising content, which has precedence elsewhere. This isn't new, right? There's different standards around political advertising on TV, on radio, and everything, right, than there are on Facebook, because obviously trying to sell you on Trump versus Biden is somehow categorically more important than trying to sell you a pair of shoes, right? Mm -hmm. This is part of why I think, again, like everyone freaks out about data and privacy and all the rest of it. 98% of the time, the machinery is just trying to sell you a pair of shoes. Like, who cares, right? But the cases where our national democracy depends on it. Yes, I agree there. The company should probably actually have different rules and more scrutiny. For example, one thing, all this pressure on Facebook, I think a lot of it's been kind of noise. Some of the, some of the pressure that I think has resulted in good things. Facebook has what's called the Facebook ad archive, which is, I encourage your listeners to go check it out. Just Google Facebook ad archive. It's like this searchable thing. It's an unprecedented level of transparency. Like nobody else does this. Google, like no other ad, big ad network does this. But you can go and say, I want to see all the ads that, that Trump is running in this state or whatever. You can just go and see and like, what, what content is this dude running? Um, and it's kind of amazing. And I think in the political world, that's definitely a welcome level of transparency. It's kind of a broad question, but there are a lot of people who think that Facebook has, has grown to such enormous dimensions and now has such awesome power, some, somewhat accidentally, right? Like it wasn't their intention to, to grow into what it what it's become, that it's it's become something like a utility. Um, do, do you do you agree with that at all, or do you think that there are any part any parts of this universe that should be regulated in a different way? Or yeah, yeah. Um, so it's funny. I mean, I think that argument is basically true, but it's funny how different people will cite it to to forward different arguments. Right. I think Facebook. If you talk to a lot of Facebook people, or I mean, or or former me, whatever, I do think Facebook has become kind of a utility, like a platform. But those people would say, well, it's a platform, right? It's like, it's like the email system or the phone system, right? Like when you get a marketing call, you don't blame AT&T. When you get a spam email, you typically don't blame Gmail. You, you blame the sender, right? And right. Facebook is just a machine for sending messages. So that's, that's one side of that argument. The other side, which is probably what you're driving at, is like, well, utilities are regulated. So Facebook should be regulated like a utility. Um, I find that, I think... If you look at the history of social media regulation or data regulation like the GDPR in Europe, and that's a whole rabbit hole we don't need to go down, but I think it's been largely ineffective. And if anything, it's just warped the market to actually benefit incumbents in a big way. And hmm. so I, I get really wary when people in DC are trying to regulate companies that they absolutely do not understand in any way, shape or form. Um, that said, I think one avenue, if you want to call it regulation or control, whatever, antitrust, I think is one avenue that maybe is not that crazy. Um, I actually wrote a piece once arguing that, you know, splitting up Facebook into Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook is maybe not a terrible idea. Um, I don't think it's going to happen under current antitrust precedent, but if you imagine a different world of antitrust, um, there's no obvious reason why WhatsApp should be owned by Facebook. There's no obvious consumer benefit that comes out of it. Um, there's a lot of benefits to Facebook, and we can get into what those are, but other than like a very hegemonic bid for control of the media markets, it's not clear why Facebook should own these companies. So right. I can see an antitrust argument against Facebook. I, I mean, I guess that's what I, what I was concerned about. Because when, when they had all those hearings, especially a couple of years ago, it felt like every every uh, member of the Senate on, on both parties, frankly, they were not terribly interested in 
the antitrust argument. They they were much more interested in finding a way to make face keep Facebook as it is, but make sure that its uh, power was going in the right direction. Right, like that, that's what I worry about. Is that there's I think what you're talking about with uh, you know regulation helping incumbents. That that that's my worry. Right, is that is that yeah. it's 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 going to be regulated in a way that is going to work in conjunction with. Uh, you know, the powers, the powers that be or whoever the sitting government happens to be. I mean, is that a fear that people should have or? or... Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, just to, again, to use GDPR as an example, GDPR places these fairly onerous constraints on what you can or can't do with data. And the reality is that given all that overhead, larger companies can handle it a lot better. And then if you're an advertiser, you tend to trust larger companies to be GDPR compliant better. And so the fraction of budgets that Facebook and Google have made up by many reports have actually gone up under a GDPR world and smaller media companies and the third party ecosystem has been hurt, has been basically destroyed by it. Hmm. Um, and so, um, I mean, here's, here's one of the weird trade-offs that I think most people don't realize. I think people in the industry totally realize that people outside don't. There's a, there's a trade-off between sort of privacy and monopoly power or, or privacy and antitrust, right? Like you can impose harsh privacy constraints around uses of data and regulation, all the rest of it, but that will necessarily tend towards agglomeration of, of, of that power within a smaller number of large companies. Or you can say, look, there's gonna be a third party ecosystem, data is gonna circulate more freely. Google and Facebook have more competition, but yes, indeed, there are more privacy issues. Look, there's sketchy shit that happens in the ad tech world. No one would deny it. And if, if um, if you allow small third parties to buy and sell your data, as, as many do, in fact, then you're going to get into privacy issues as well. Yeah, I, I, but again, I think the level of the conversation is like not even remotely there yet. Like people are still talking right. about whether like Zuck listens to you like through your phones and like records right, your conversation. Right. It's like, dude, we need to be like 10 years ahead of this. And I think just as, as, a, as a final thing, like it just seems to me like this business of wiring up everyone's brain to one of these, to a smartphone, right? Like literally everyone from like, a taxi driver in Bangalore to a farmer in Brazil to some hipster in San Francisco have instant, instant communication, right? Like this is literally global telepathy in your pocket, right? That the realities of that, I think are just so, are so disruptive to just society as we know it. Like the, the whys and wherefores of like Cambridge Analytica or, you know, some little tweak to the, to the political rules around Facebook are not going to change any of that. And we as a society need to start thinking about what does it mean when all of humanity can talk to itself in effectively an unfiltered way. And I don't think we're having that conversation. I think if you look at almost every part of the political spectrum, the only thing that distinguishes them is what year they want to return to. Like what year do they think society <laughs> should be rewinded to, right? Like the MAGA people think it's like, oh, 1958. And like, you know, the Obama people are like, no, 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 2008. Like everyone just wants to return. And nobody seems to have anything like a vision for the future, which which is coming no matter what anyway. Which is coming no matter what, exactly. Right, <laughs> That's why right. we got to build back better. <laughs> That's the Biden phrase, right? Yeah. I saw that, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not just Biden, it's, it's all over the place, apparently. Yeah, yeah. But that's, Boris Johnson. Uh, yeah. but, uh, what do you have to say about, I mean, so much of the discourse around elections and interference is, is based on um, what the, the Russians did on Facebook. Oh yeah. Um, and it seems like, uh, I don't know if you have any access to this information, yeah. but it seems like there's a big conflation between the Russian government and Russian business people. The um, troll farms or whatever. Troll farms, yeah. yeah. Do you have any uh, insight into that or? Um, well, I, I'm not a very good criminologist. I, what, what I do have insight into, and I've gotten into fights about with 
a friend of mine like Renee DeResta, who's a big voice in this whole misinformation thing. She works at the Stanford Research Lab. Um, the whole Russia Internet Research Agency thing, right? The problem there, like, without any question, they obviously intervene and try to use Facebook groups to influence the election. Like, that's just documented. But what I, what I doubt is the efficacy of all that, right? Like, the, what's come out at least is they spent $100,000 on ads, which is nothing. That's like, that's like whistling into, the, into a tornado when it comes to Facebook. And then if you look at the actual numbers, like the number of pages, the number of likes, like, again, if you, if you take all that, like, think about for a marketer, right? You take human activity, and then you divide it by like either the number of total pieces of content or the number of ad impressions or the number of whatever. If you divide it by that, that's your ratio that you care about. That divisor in the case of Facebook is billions and billions and billions, right? So for, for Russia to have thrown the election in a 330 plus million person country would have required a media tidal wave like no other, right? Like if these people can claim to throw the election with 100K in ad spend, they should stop dicking around to Russia and start an ad agency and come to the United States because that's incredible, right? <laughs> like, 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 and in fact, the Russians, the best 100K they spent was convincing somehow the US media establishment that 100K can actually win an election. I, I find the whole thing, I mean, it is alarming. Like I think going forward, obviously countries are going to use this for misinformation as they've used every other means in the past, right? Russia used to have, you know, radio stations that would transmit to the US right. and all this stuff, right? Like this is, this is just a continuous of war by the by different means so I, I'm, I'm skeptical of the Russia story just because again they were doing it I just right. I don't know how efficacious it actually was right. in the global scheme of things. so they didn't start they didn't create racism and start Black Lives Matter over Facebook they didn't hey man, sorry. sorry Jesus memes Jesus. I'm telling you Jesus memes will Jesus, just... ma Jesus masturbation memes now that's the killer combo on uh, what masturbation memes alone Jesus means alone not so much but you put no, them we, together we can we can beat it together yeah yeah <laughs> that was the, yeah uh, feeling down Jesus can let's beat it together yeah I, I don't want to imagine what that meme even looks like okay <laughs> I'll, send, I'll send it to you I'll, I'll, your word for it. I'll send it to you with a trigger warning it's not graphic at all which is why I was able to be on Facebook of course excellent all right Antonio cool. thanks thank so, much. so much we've already we're run over thanks time so much, but yeah. that, uh, no, thanks thank and we'll, uh, thank we'll, we'll yeah. talk to you again soon yeah, yeah thanks a lot cool. yeah all right Bye. Take care. All right, that was uh, that was interesting. He, Very uh, interesting. Knows a lot. Knows a lot about a lot of stuff. Cares a lot. Yeah, and and you know, I think, I think one point that I think is worth taking away from that conversation is that people are are hyper focused on things that they want to happen uh, in this new kind of information dominated landscape, and nobody's really embracing the fact of what's happening, which is that this new technology that com so completely dominates our lives uh maybe maybe dominates the wrong word that is you know that, that that's involved with our lives at so many different levels people just haven't wrapped their heads around how how enormous that changes and and what it means and they i think they keep wanting to put certain kinds of band-aids on it and not face it and that was i thought that was an interesting point that he was making also the the russia stuff keeps popping up um I have a question. What I feel almost pressured to not talk about this until after the election, but it's really hard because there's just like myth after myth after myth coming out and being regurgitated about the role of the Russians. And are we going to have to just do a kind of a post-election um, post-mortem on this? Because do you think it's too much of a, do you think it functions too much as a Trump exonerating tool right now or trump justifying or or the hunter biden thing too yeah we we've both talked about this for over a year now the the you know these stories which 
are primarily coming from people who work inside the security services or who work in these think tanks that, you know, are have some kind of an interest in playing up the the Russian threat. Um, you know, they they drive these news stories. Reporters love them because they're sexy and because uh, they're politically useful. And and it I think the Democratic Party likes it also because it it plants the seed for an explanation if if things should go wrong. I hate these stories. I you know and and they they're just they're just too many of them to individually knock down Debunk, each time. Yeah. So yeah, I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know how to talk about it at this point. It, it, it's yeah. it's exhausting. We've had it's exhausting, um, yeah. you know I I, I am going to try to count literally all of the all of the screwed up news stories from the last four years, uh, but it it's just happening now. It's such a fast pace that it's uh, it's tough to keep track of. And then people are going to be like, why are you talking about this now? We should be focusing on the election. Can we just talk about the basic? I don't know if this is easy in like a minute, a lightning round, like the basic things that people keep saying that aren't true. Like no one no one paid attention to that CrowdStrike piece. The one that Aaron Mate came on to talk about where he, you know, where Adam Schiff got that guy to say that there was no evidence of exfiltration. Yeah, not direct evidence. Not right. direct yeah. evidence. It was circumstantial yeah. evidence. Or the Julian Assange thing. I mean, that's something that's Assange insane. Thing. Yeah. And or yeah, or yeah, where people always say you're defending Putin. No, well, no, actually, it has nothing to do with Putin. He's irrelevant to the whole situation. And this is about um, how how much we're um, saying that Russians are impacting our lives. And if we're saying that they uh, get more than they really are, then that's just that's just not correct. It's not a positive reflect reflection on Vladimir Putin. Um, that's not defending him. That's just talking about this. But it's it's become impossible to even uh, talk about it, to talk about it. Yeah. And, and when and when they do kind of fizzle out, they fizzle out on page 11 after having been on page one. Right. You know, like the the Russian bounty story, which which I I think was a story that was designed to make sure that certain budgetary measures were passed. Um, you know, it was in the news for two weeks. And then, you know, a month later, they say, oh, yeah, we don't actually have evidence for that. But right. whatever. But come up. But Kamala still brought it up in the debate. Yeah, of course, because the, the line between what is true and what's, you know, proven and not proven right. just gets blurrier and blurrier all the time so and, for, for some people this is real it just is real there's nothing you can say right you can't say anything and just really quickly so we had nadia on from pussy riot and this is a woman who was imprisoned by putin like she's not a putin fan at all and even she was like putin doesn't have the power that people are saying he has and masha gessen also not a putin fan but was saying how useful it is for oh, Putin. he loves this. He loves this. Like, what a great what? That's the irony. You guys are giving Putin the pre PR. You guys right. who think he's evil. Like, this is great for him to look like he's interfering with elections. And um, yeah. you know, yeah, and, you know, and as as Antonio talked about, the the, the numbers last time around were, and you know, they they turned that hundred thousand dollars worth of ads, and they 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 used the trick. They said, you know, that it, up to one hundred and twenty six million people saw those ads, but Obviously, it wasn't that many, right. you know, and and that amount of money. Anyway, also some we'll, of them we'll came out. Some of them came out after the elections. Some of them came out after the elections. A lot of them came out in states that were safe states for Democrats. Where relatively small amounts uh, came out in Michigan and right. Wisconsin. If you actually looked at it, it's it's clear that it's totally stupid. Um, but it doesn't matter, you know. For for, yeah. for a lot of people, it's true, and it's always. Gonna be.
So yeah, you know we're get we're heading down the home stretch. I'm sure there's going to be lots more to talk about next week, and we'll get we'll get to that. So until then, rate and review us, buy merch, and uh, we'll see you next week. Great. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.